Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve on the team of, uh, el- of elders that leads the church. It was really hard to call myself an elder. The team of young elders that lead the church. Uh, if you're a Cowboys fan in here, I just have a warning for you today. Um, though my, my speaking might not go longer than the 40 minutes like normal, the service could get out of hand in a good way. That's what I'm praying for. Because the, the scripture we have today has really led me to go deeper into the riches of God. And I, I pray that you would see something that you can't contain in and of yourself as well. Today we're in week four of our series, The Remnant. Let me drop just a real simple truth bomb on you, that one of those never gets old type of three-word lines. Ready? You're ready. Okay. Jesus saves sinners. That never gets old, especially when God helps you to see that you're one of them, because you're one of them, but some of us just don't see it. I've seen it for over two decades. I'm one of the sinners being saved, and it's amazing that Jesus saves sinners. Sinners that try to save themselves and never are able to. Sinners that don't try to save themselves and need saving anyway, Jesus saves sinners. Now, that's amazing. What's even more amazing is how he does it. He goes into the darkness and preserves a remnant of people that he transforms into people of light and, in the darkness, brings his light in the most unexpected of ways. You'd read the Bible, and if you think it's boring, you find out it's you that's boring. The way Jesus does what he does is amazing. Now, if you're taking notes, this message is entitled, Bestower of Riches. So let's stand up to honor God's word and see if we can get rich today. Amen? Amen. Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live. By them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But, verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, or believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, quoting the prophet Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond our thoughts or all the the things that we think we know or the things that we're concerned that we don't know. 
or get insecure about. A blessing that allows us to see that you're the only one who's ever lived out the law perfectly, and yet you traded your life for our death on the cross, and you rose again from the dead so that you could bring eternal riches, your very life, to us. So God forbid that we would concern ourselves with lesser things when the very riches of heaven are available to us right now. Help us to see you. Open our eyes to see all that you have for us and loosen our lips to proclaim it for your glory. Amen. There's three things I want to focus on as I work through the passage today. I'm going to kind of drop into the center of it for context for context, and then go from the start to the finish. But these three things I'm going to focus on. Man's formulas, God's nearness, and finally, endless riches. First, man's formulas. Romans 10 is not about man-centered religious formulas. I'm going to show you that really in something that I've confused in the middle of our passage, and then I'm going to build some context by going to the start of the whole chapter, the, the text that Alberto preached last week with all sorts of Alberto power. Jesus power in Alberto. Sorry about that. But I just want to say that over the last 22 years of being a Christian, I've found that it's way too easy to pick this Bible up and read into Scripture. Like, read my own bias, presumption, read my ideas into Scripture as opposed to reading Scripture, and even better, allowing by the Spirit of God the Scripture to read me. And so here's what, I, what I've done with specifically Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, which were some of the first few verses that I memorized years ago. I would memorize it and then read my own presumption into it. So it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, verse 10, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So beware, because if you, like me, read your own presumption into it, you could read these words and rip it off and get the exact opposite, not just a little bit off, but the exact opposite conclusion out of it. Here's what I kind of did with these words, okay? So if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Okay, so that means to, to save myself, I, I throw in, some, I throw in some, uh, some believing, I throw in some confessing, I got myself some salvation sauce right there. I, I can save myself by doing these things. But this is not just a little bit off of what the whole chapter is actually saying. This is exactly the opposite of what he's saying. And not because this is wrong, but because I read something wrong into it. Man-centered formulas is precisely what this whole passage, this whole chapter is correcting, not endorsing. He's not saying these things, believing Confessing is what men do to be saved. The chapter is saying, look at what God has done to save us. Jesus brought his word so near that in essence, you do nothing and you're saved. In essence, 
even as you're believing in the risen one and confessing him, you are saved and being saved and more rich and rich and more rich. Romans 10 is not proclaiming or prescribing what we are supposed to do as much as it's proclaiming what God has done. And so for context, let me back up to verses 1 through 4 that sets the tone of what the whole chapter is saying. Y'all going with me to the start? Scroll up to the top in your app or go to the page before in your Bible. I get even more insecure when there's not any enthusiasm. Come on, y'all. Well, you're going with me here? So, sorry, I'm that guy that has to be encouraged. No, not sorry. Brothers, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, a religious passion, but not according to knowledge, so without any sort of real understanding. Verse 3, 4, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, literally the righteousness that comes from God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So in essence, Paul is saying that Israel had done with God's word what I was doing the first few years with verses 9 and 10. They had picked off the grace of God and really appropriated God's word for their own human formulas. And yet they'd done it with all sorts of authentic, sincere, religious passion. And our generation loves to judge ideas based on sincerity. And Paul is saying, you can have all sorts of zeal, but without knowledge. And in any generation... When you have the formula of lots of passion minus understanding, or what verse 2 calls knowledge, it's a formula for accelerated evil, even though there's all sorts of devoted fervor. And try to track with me here. I know it's kind of hard to relate to that the ancient Jewish people from way, way long ago, they're hard to relate to because they had all this religious, passionate ideas about things that they thought God was hyped about. And uh, unbeknownst to them, they had veered far away from the goal of God's word. And I'm only being facetious because it's not hard to relate to, and it's not far off and ancient. We, we do this. We totally relate to this. We can know just enough about religion Like Nacho Libre, I am, I am, a real religious man. We can know just enough to be dangerous in opposition to God, thinking ourselves on his team. We're too prone to hijacking his scriptures against what they're teaching for our own formulas. And then contrary to the heart of God, we turn it on others and pervert the justice and love of God towards others Just like ancient Jews that Paul was talking about, we cling to a form of godliness, denying its power. As Paul said in 2 Timothy, and it's all zealous devotion. We're really passionate. We're excited. But we're bypassing the heart of God's word, really rejecting God with his own Bible. And so here's how it looks here in America. We syncretize two totally separate religions, just like the Jews 
in the ancient times that Paul was talking about would combine or syncretize real faith from God with man-centered formulas. So we will take Christian values that are more of our culture and combine it confusingly with the heart of the Bible. And it just gets all confused in our minds. So we got, you know, sacrifice and uh, patriotism. And then you got to throw in some guns in there for whatever reason. We love guns. And we confuse that with the heart of God. And we, it all gets all confused in our mind as if that's what God's most passionate about, even while we're dehumanizing other people. Now, listen. I'm not saying it's wrong to be passionate about guns and being okay with patriotism. I love our country. If you're really, really offended by that correction, there might be something in your heart that God wants to correct and heal, by the way. But I'm not saying it's wrong to be passionate about our country. It's wrong, though, to syncretize it as if it's religion that pleases God from his word. It's not. And and I'm not just picking on right-wing people because we all, the whole world across the board, tends to do this thing where we get violently passionate about things we think God's super passionate about, but it's totally unscriptural, against the heart of God, not Christian. The priests, prophets, and bishops of secular culture do this too passionate desire to liberate men and liberate women to be their own true selves that preach this zealous sermon to people you know go and harness your most basic animalistic passions and be free and then then we get outraged when people obey the doctrine being preached when they actually do the things that they're exalting in their sensual desires on the altar of worship, we have to sacrifice and objectify the dignity of other people along the way. And we have to sacrifice the, ch- the children that would inconvenience us in the process. And we get this weird shock, like we're totally shocked that the, the unhindered human selfishness doesn't actually liberate people. It doesn't lead to this utopia of humanistic purity that we think it's going to lead to. When we just do the you do you religion. We're real passionate about it. But God is the source of deepest purity and most exhilarating pleasure and joy. And when we sell ourselves short, no matter how zealous we seem to be, when we sell ourselves short of the glory of God, we are doing harm to ourselves and others every time. When we when we reject his transcendent voice from above and we run to the lesser voices to the right or to the left, we're doing violence and it's deadly. It's not just the ancient religious people. It's human nature. All of us try to replace the word of God with man-centered formulas. And the devil's always been happy to not just allow it, but to encourage our religious zeal to go towards anything but Jesus. Get passionate, get super hyped about anything and everything except Jesus, and I'm going to help you. If you don't speak fluent jock, then just check out for a second. But I've heard someone say before that the devil is like an all-pro offensive lineman. An all-pro offensive lineman wants to use 
the edge rusher's energy against him. So if the edge rusher is trying to get to the quarterback, to tackle the quarterback, the the all-pro offensive lineman isn't going to try to drive you 15 yards in the other direction. He's going to try to use your energy to just get you a little bit off course so you don't get to the quarterback. All your zeal. Now the analogy breaks down because we're not trying to tackle Jesus, but we're still, still trying to get there, all right? And the devil wants to just drift us off course and uses your own energy, your own passion, your own desire against you. The most sincere and authentic religious passion in a man or a woman lacking the heart of God that's revealed in his word never accomplishes true righteousness because, verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law. He's the whole point of the whole book. So check out how verse 5 then, the first verse of our of our passage today, explains verses 1 through 4. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. It literally says, Moses writes that someone who does the commandments shall find life by performing them. Now you might say, wait a minute, isn't that exactly the opposite of what the last verse said? It said Christ is the end of the law. And now it's saying that someone who fulfills the law will find life and salvation. It's actually saying that because Jesus is the only one who's ever done the law and found life by it. He's achieved life. He's the only one to cross the finish line. He's the end of the law. So all we're left with is faith. You can try in vain to please God all on your own, or you can rest in Jesus who has fully pleased God on our behalf and live a life of adventure that he has for us. Okay, you're getting high. Okay, thank you, Jesus. More people are here. See, the rest of us have failed to do the commandments if your name is not Jesus. He's saying the ancient Jews have not been able to attain this thing, this goal that they're going after. One scholar said that Israel is the historical theater to see how man-centered formulas when we reject God never lead to righteousness. So verse 5 says, Moses wrote about what happens when we try to please God and bring life upon ourselves. But when it says here in verse 5 that Christ is the end of the law and that someone who lives the the commandments, shall find life by them. What we're supposed to do is see how we fail to live the commandments and find life by them. And we're supposed to see how Jesus found life by the the commandments he lived. When I read the Old Testament, when I I struggled halfway through Leviticus, when I read the Bible every year, I'm often thinking, geez, Jesus did all of this for me. Jesus fulfills the whole law. And so we're supposed to put our faith in him. He's the object of our faith. As well as the portal for us to have faith. So verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend from the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. These verses are a little bit tricky to interpret, so I got some help. Paul's commenting on, Deuteronomy 30, basically saying it's the word of God is not some trick that God's played on us, some mirage, like we can never please God. It's not so far off that it's impossible to attain, but it's also not beneath us, like verse 7 would allude us, the, 
verse 7, he, he talks about us being eluded into thinking. It's not beneath us. It's not something we can just kind of resurrect by our own formulas. So when he goes on later to say about how the promise of life is upon us, if we confess and believe, it's confirmed. He's not issuing a formula. He's bringing good news. The good news specifically of number two, God's nearness. He's saying, even though it's not attainable by your own design, and it's not impossibly far off though. Why? Verse eight. What does it say? The word is near you. He he quotes the rest of Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you. How near? In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So really being able to please God, living an unwasted life, not just being a normal person who eats and sleeps and dies and wastes his life. Actually having a life of true purpose that pleases God is not so far off. It's near you. How near? It's near enough to overwhelm your heart so full that it flows out of your lips in an unending flow of anointing. I would say that's pretty near. What Moses may not have fully seen in professing Deuteronomy 30, that I think Paul saw more clearly, is that this life that God designed for us is near to us because Jesus Christ has brought it near to us. We can see it in Jesus. We can savor it. Our eyes can be placed upon Jesus, be transfixed by him. Don't take my word for it. Go read the Bible for yourself and see if you can read a gospel and be the same. Don't take other people's word for it. Like Alberto said last week, don't take the rotten tomato version of Jesus. Go read the Bible for yourself and tell me if any human being can make up a person like Jesus Christ. There's no one like him. I remember the first time where I saw in, in, my, in my own self for the first time my sin for what it was when the law when the the word was preached at a Bible study. And then I saw Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. And I, this believing and confessing thing happened in me. The word of God was brought near to me. And I was consuming this like a child consumes his mother's milk. And you know how I know the Bible's true? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside me. And I eat and I drink the truth of God because I've been made new. Jesus is the perfect person that's come into our lives. So we we see and behold him. Our eyes are just transfixed in who he is. And we're transformed in our believing to the degree that, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's a lot of saving. This is not a formula to follow. Again, it's a promise that's being fulfilled before our eyes. So don't miss this inseparable connection between believing and confessing. It's not saying believing, but maybe also confessing. These two words are together. You can't separate them any more than you can separate Siamese twins and one of them will live on its own. Be careful if you're not a surgeon. Don't try to do that. 
we can't separate confessing and believing. They're one and the same here. They're, they're different parts of the same fruit, not, not different fruits. Or even better, confessing and believing is light. Together it's light. If you, if you go to a, if in the middle of the night, go to your house, it's completely dark. You turn the light on inside. The light on inside that house is like the believing And the windows through which that light gets outside of your house is like the confession that comes from our lips. So when Jesus, through his gospel, turns the light on in the house of your soul, there is believing and there is confessing. It's not one or the other. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's on the inside will be confessed on the outside. So what if someone confesses without believing. You know, I mean, you've heard people say things about Jesus and quote Bible verses without being true believers. That was me until I was 14 years old. What if that happens? I would say that it's just not true confession. It's false confession. It's, it's like mimicry. Like I could tell you my story in a way that's not a true confession. I could tell you in, in West Philadelphia, born and raised. On the playground is where I spent most of my days. I'll stop. Maybe. That's not my story. And that's not confession. It's a false confession. It's mimicking. By the way, it's not even rap. It's honky impressionism. It's not my story. And similarly, before I knew Jesus, I would say things but it wasn't believing confession. It was mimicry. I could say things about Jesus, but it wasn't true confession because I knew about Jesus. I didn't know Jesus. The light had not turned on inside the house. So whatever was coming out was not coming out from light. Now, what about the other way around? Can one believe without confessing? I don't think so. Jesus said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do you light a lamp and then put a bowl over it. The internal pressure, the flow of the Holy Spirit cannot be dammed up. If he's in you, he'll come out of you. If he's in your heart, he'll be on your lips. So let him out. Let him out. Decide to let him out. Now, people, people could say things like, we feel this weird hindrance as if like some arbitrary feeling of authenticity has to come from us before we, we sing in church at the start or before we tell our neighbors about him. Like if I, if I said something kind of mean to my wife this morning, maybe I can't share Jesus with my coworker. That's foolishness. We say things like, we can't force it. But we don't believe that in every other areas of our life. <laughs> we force ourselves to not spend money on certain things. Some of us force ourselves to do foolish things with our money. All of us. I, if you're a Christian, you force yourself to look away from certain things, to force yourself to put your eyes on Jesus. We force ourselves to confess Jesus in our lives and other areas of life 
So why is it that we think that this is something else when we confess Jesus to our friends and neighbors or when we come to church? It's the first song and a few weird people over in different parts are clapping and I don't know what I'm feeling, but you know what the Bible says, Psalm 150? Clap your hands, oh, you people. Man, it doesn't say like once you feel like clapping is necessary, go ahead and clap. No, it says clap your hands. Maybe what's inside sometimes need to be rebooted by our external behavior. Now, it's, it's true that what's inside is most important. But I've heard people say things like, it's what's inside that's all that's important. As if what's happening on the outside shouldn't be an expression of what's happening on the inside. What I profess with my hands and my feet, with my money, with my body and with my lips should be an expression. No, it is an expression of what's on the inside or what's not on the inside. So Jesus, let our confession spread like a great contagion in Jesus' name. I was sitting a few, the last few weeks, it's the first few weeks of football, and I've been noticing as I've been praying, what if, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit even kind of whispered to me, Peter, what if you cheered for, for me in church the way you cheer in football when you're watching football? I hurt my feelings. God does that sometimes. What do you get zealous and excited about that maybe you need to take dominion over yourself to confess Jesus in church and at work to your neighbor? Verse 11, check this out. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I think the context is that we encounter shame when we're really believing and our believing is turning into biblical confessing. If we're not confessing to the degree that we invite the world's shame, something's wrong. The world would be perfectly happy with you to mind your business at work and then go home and watch your favorite Netflix show insulated from your neighbors with the garage door closed. Shame comes from the world when you're confessing and proclaiming Christ to your neighbors and coworkers and friends. And that confession weaves its way into your weekly schedule, inconveniencing your other habits. Second Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted or shamed. So we need to pray, Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done so that I can confess you with increasing obedience wherever I am. And bless me, Lord, with the riches of all the world's shame, even if it costs me. That should be our prayer. Now, before we move forward, I just want to warn you that if the Holy Spirit's showing you right now that your life and your confession, what's on your lips, don't reveal that there's a light on inside, that there's true believing. Don't turn false belief and false confession into false conversion. Specifically, don't go try to manufacture confessing. 
if your life and your lips reveal to you that there's something not on, rest in Jesus and watch him pour out his riches on you. Produce true belief as you're arrested in his presence. Watch what happens. Don't try to manufacture it. Don't do the man-centered formula thing. It's not about man's formulas, but God's nearness, which leads to number three, endless riches. See, God doesn't just come near to you and then leave you there. He, he comes near, and then he brings you up. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches over all who call upon him. This had to feel so unfair to the ancient Jews at the time. Almost like the Gentiles, like us, are getting like a cheat code to the game that they'd been playing the whole time and not gotten to the end in. Saying there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles like us are no longer on the outside looking in. But listen, Jews are no longer on the inside destined to be sent out, squandering their position and in, in facing eternal banishment. Or those of us who think that our human formulas can arrive at holiness without God. No, we're not left to that. Check out the last verse. Verse 13 references the prophet Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise verbatim from the prophet Joel. Everyone who lives on earth is brought near enough to grasp God's riches, if we will. And what are the riches? I think the riches are everything else that this whole chapter is talking about. Out of this world, riches. I saw how many times, five or six times, that it mentions saved in this, these few verses. There's, there's just a lot of saving happening. Different words used for it. The least that I can conclude is this, and I tried to do more, but I'm going to at least start with the least. At least I know that there's a lot of saving happening. And when God saves you and makes you rich in the kingdom of God, the rich just keep getting richer if we will. If we would tap into it. There's more of him. There's more deliverance. There's greater hope. There's refuge. There's more purity. Jesus can't stop, won't stop saving the saved. He, he grows us. He, he, it's like when you, when you get saved for the first time, you, you're justified, as the Bible says here. You're made new. It's like you were falling off the ledge into death, the eternal abyss, and he grabs you and pulls you up, but he doesn't just set you on the side. He takes you on on a wild adventure, a joyride of life that never stops, and he takes you to revisit your old bouts of bitterness and unforgiveness and insecurities and things that would hold you back to really anchor you to the earth so that you can be more fit for heaven. So Romans 10 doesn't just show a rescue mission. It's an ongoing invasion of heaven's glory here on earth. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before. It's kind of like an old school warning. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Anyone ever heard that? Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no 
earthly good. I think rarely will you hear something more disgusting and foolish and baseless vomited out of human lips than that. If you want to know what I really think, come talk to me after service. Now, if your grandma told you that, then be nice to your grandma. Don't correct her. Just show her heaven. Tap into Jesus. There's more of him that's available to you. This week, I I was led to read an old book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's about heaven and hell. And he does such a masterful job showing how heaven is more real than what we see now. You know, when you wake up from a dream and you're like, oh man, that wasn't real. And you, that's what heaven is like compared to now and our worries and fears and insecurities now. And often I think that we need to, to be most uh, capacitated to do what we're called to do here. We need to step outside of here in various ways. We can read old biographies. We can, we can read books like this. Whatever it is, we need to be lifted out of the awareness of the news happening on earth. Multiple times this year, I've been corrected by the Holy Spirit. He's told me, Peter, put down this Christian worldview or leadership book. Turn off the Christian worldview podcast. Turn it off, and I want you to pray in tongues. It's a spiritual gift that God promises. It's a heavenly language where we can edify parts of ourselves like our spirit, even while, as as 1 Corinthians 14 says, our minds are not edified. We don't even understand. How often do you need things in your life from God that you're built up by that you don't quite understand? And so God would lead me away multiple times this, this year Put those things aside and come be with me. And earlier this week, this happened, and, and I surrendered to his voice, and I, I turned on some music, and I started praying. And I would love to tell you that that's how my whole week went. But most of the rest of the week has been pulling back in disobedience. And so I'm standing in front of you right now at 10.58 a.m., desperately needing to respond in faith to the very things I'm preaching here right now more of heaven's riches overriding my earthly worries and distractions and fears and insecurities. And I say to you that regardless of what spiritual gifts or literary gifts that might cause you to encounter God's endless riches, here's the point. To be of utmost earthly good, you need to tap into heaven's riches. Be a shameless fool in the world. This earth is not your home if you're a believer. In fact, verse 13, where it quotes this this promise, all they who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember, that's, that's a conclusion from a promise in the book of Joel. But here's how the promise starts in the book of Joel. Many of y'all might have already read this before. Here's the promise, the start of the promise from the book of Joel. And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. So no matter what weighs you down or what's on your mind or on your schedule or what you think you have to do after church, 
Would you earnestly desire the higher gifts, especially that you would prophesy? Would you be greedy for heaven's riches and lay aside any lesser motivation in you? And if you're in here, if any of you feel uncomfortable with all this, heaven's riches and the gift of tongues and things like that, I just want you to know that you're in an okay place. God is not ashamed of your discomfort. He wants to sanctify it. I almost never feel like cozy with the Holy Spirit. In fact, I most often feel uncomfortable with the things that he calls me to do and to preach. But the Holy Spirit is the comforter, as Jesus says. And he does a better job comforting me than my own comforts comfort me. His peace and joy and purity and power is way better than mine. In fact, it's often the boundaries that I set for myself that hold me back from true joy and comfort. Holy Spirit wants to take us on a mountaintop, and it's always beholding Jesus, the glorious one, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, the the one to whom angels and a multitude from every language will, will behold and say, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. When we see and look upon his holiness, we can't say anything but endless praise. No other thoughts will weigh down in our mind. They'll be, they'll be displaced by the weightiness of his glory. I want to share a song with you that led my mind away from my distractions this week. It's a song written by uh, our Every Nation Church in the Philippines about what Jesus has brought near to us. We're going to do something a little different today, and we're going to go right into this song, but I want to read the words to you. This is a prayer to Jesus. From golden streets, stars at your feet, from royalty, you came down. Could you all close your eyes? I'm going to say this again. From golden streets, stars at your feet, from royalty, Jesus, you came down. How can it be your majesty would reach for me. You came down and you found me and you saved me and you made me whole. Endless mercy came to find my soul. Heaven's glory took me, made me whole. My heart will sing, I'm yours. For all I am is yours. Lord, that's our prayer as we encounter you and behold you. May everything else be washed away. At this moment, during this song, you can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, you can lay on the ground with your face on the ground. I want you to think about what God's done as we sing. Let's sing along.